Um, so, interesting thing, I guess, about the filmmaking process is that the two of you actually only recently met, <laughs> as in tonight, right? Correct. Uh, Funny, right? <laughs> so, um, I mean, in terms of the sound design, uh, how does that work? I mean, how, how, do, you know, how do you come up with a conception for how you want the movie to sound, and how is that executed and between the two of you? Well, I, I was hired by Carl Anderson, who was the supervising sound editor and was also the supervising sound editor on Mr. Death and on uh, Mr. Morris's TV show for many, many episodes. So you and Carl had a language that he understood, and I'm, I've known Carl for 20 years, and we've done many projects together, so he was able to communicate that to me, to... You know, supply him with the sounds. Like I said earlier, it was the just was the old school definition of what a sound designer is, where someone who's specifically making sounds to give to the supervising sound editor to use, as opposed to being the supervising sound editor. So, um, at at the uh, master class that that you gave a, a couple days ago, um, you mentioned that uh, you 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 know when you started doing documentary, there are a whole bunch of things about documentary conventions that you detested <laughs> and you wanted to do really differently. Um, so I'm wondering what, what are some of the conventions about sound that you wanted to do differently, about how, how a documentary sounds or how the music in a documentary should function, and things like that? Uh, there are all kinds of different rules, documentary rules, that existed in one form or another when I first started making documentary films um, I think probably I don't know this for sure one of the rules was that you shouldn't be overly concerned with sound you should just get sound catch as catch can you shouldn't be manufacturing sounds or anything else um, available light handheld cameras um, uh, no reenactments of any kind <laughs> One of the truly bizarre elements in this film, I've never really even figured it out, is this opening sequence, which was produced by the Department of Defense. They reenacted the Gulf of Tonkin Bay incidents very shortly after the incidents themselves. In fact, the second attack in the Gulf of Tonkin, we now know, never occurred, so they potentially we're reenacting something that never happened in the first place. <laughs> um, but no, I, I never had much use for any of those conventions. <clears throat> and in fact, I, I was very, very bad. I ignored all of them. <laughs> but this film happened almost by accident. I was doing a series for um, uh, Bravo and I was required to produce a certain number of shows and I had some money left over. And so I thought, well, I'll see if I can interview Robert S. McNamara. I'd always imagined that I should at least make some kind of cursory effort to get him in front of a camera, I always believed he would 
never say yes. Um, but he did. I mean, he said yes, and he said no, and he said no, and no, and yes. I mean, it was catch as catch can until I actually got him in front of the camera. But there he was. Uh, he even gave me a homework assignment. The homework assignment was that he would do a half-hour interview with me, um, which then became an hour because he was enjoying himself. <laughs> and then that became two hours and two and a half hours, and then he suggested that he should come back. He was getting tired. He should come back the following day. <laughs> and that became five or more hours. And the homework assignment was he told me to edit this material and show it to him he liked it he would uh, continue making the film if he didn't uh, I would put it on a shelf and that would be <laughs> it so I dutifully complied I edited that material I showed it to him and he agreed to make this film which became the fog of war and I will always be truly grateful to him for doing it I see him as a war criminal, but a war criminal that I became immensely fond of. Um, I just came for the end of the movie. I haven't seen this in many, many, many years. And I found myself moved by it. Uh, the scene where McNamara compares himself uh, to Norman Thompson saying that war was extremely difficult for people who were in any way sensitive, and he included himself among them. It's a very, very sad and telling moment. Then I had the occasion to make another movie <laughs> uh, with a Another Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> it sounds like a villain. <laughs> His name always sounds villainous to me somehow. <laughs> um, I don't know if the name sounds villainous, but certainly the person himself is villainous. <laughs> um, at first, people, this utterly amazed me, um, compared Rumsfeld and McNamara as if they were one and the same. Indeed, they both presided over truly disastrous wars, horrible wars. Um, they were secretaries of defense. Um, they wore similar glasses, although I believe Rumsfeld was a McNamara Monkey, uh, <laughs> that he was trying to imitate him, either knowingly or unknowingly. Um, but I can't imagine two more different people. Um, my wife, Julia, has the best line about Robert McNamara. She compared him to the Flying Dutchman, who was condemned to travel the world uh, hoping to be redeemed by love uh, and fails. 
There is really no redemption in this story, save for McNamara's attempt to come to an understanding of what he's done, uh, who he is. If anything is slightly, and I'm not a great believer in redemption, um, nothing redeems either the Iraq War or the Vietnam War. Um, and even thinking of either of those wars, or war in general, as being in some way redemptive, misses the point utterly. Um, but McNamara is a person who is reflecting on experience. Uh, Rumsfeld is a person who just lives in his own strange, solipsistic universe where there's just him prattling on, um, no reflection, uh, no desire to come to any understanding of who he is or what he's done, um, just the almost mechanical desire to talk. <laughs> well, it's interesting. You almost get a description of him in advance in this movie, you know, I think McNamara has the line twice. He says something about <coughs> only a person who is not honest would say that they made no mistakes. And then I immediately kind of thought of Rumsfeld, <laughs> the portrait of Rumsfeld. I don't know. Although I, and this is the most shocking thing about Rumsfeld, is I believe he believes he made no mistakes. I think he's utterly convinced of his own rectitude, his own correctness. Hmm. Um, so you might modify McNamara's statement. Only a complete narcissistic smarmy idiot <laughs> would believe he makes no mistakes. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I, I just wanted to ask some questions about the uh, sound technique of, of the movie since uh, this, this is showing as part of a series that's looking at the sound design of things. Um, so, I, I mean... Obviously, two big signature elements, or a couple of big signature elements of your movies are the scores that you often use from uh, Philip Glass. Um, and then also, I think, the style of the, of the interview. Um, I'm, I mean, I like to think of it as the, the heckler style sometimes, where sometimes you have your voice delivered in a kind of back-of-the-room sort of way, and sometimes it's in a different mode. Um, I don't know. I'm just curious how you kind of developed or how you choose when you do. McNamara was hard of hearing. Oh, okay. So <laughs> there's the answer. <laughs> so uh, in order to be heard, um, there's a problem when you're recording an interview, when you're recording sound with the Interatron, my interviewing machine. Uh, I'm not seated next to him. I'm seated some distance away. And we're both looking into teleprompters. We're both looking at each other's live video images. But to set up a speaker so that he can hear my voice more clearly directly next to him creates its own set of technical problems. Uh, feedback, et cetera, et cetera. So that is almost invariably turned off sometimes turned on briefly during a question. But for the most part, I would scream at him <laughs> in order to be heard. 
Hello? <laughs> so there's no great mystery here. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, it creates a, a, a neat effect uh, sometimes. But, but I mean, like at the very end, when you're asking questions the, in the epilogue, um, his voice has the total like clarity of, of the whole movie. You know, it's very, it's very polished. But your voice kind of sounds more like it's, it's like on an answering machine almost or something like that. Is, is that just the way it's recorded or...? Uh, the end of it, my editor felt very strongly that it needed an epilogue, and she was right. Um, so what we did, uh, I recorded a telephone conversation okay. with McNamara in his office in Washington, and my sound recordist from Boston f flew down to Washington and was in McNamara's office recording that sound. I was on a telephone. Oh, I see, okay. So. That's why. <laughs> that's why it sounds why. that way. Okay. And it's strange, you have this feeling, the disparity of sound notwithstanding, that I'm actually talking to him in the car. Hmm. But I'm not. That, Sound was produced completely independently and added to all of this material that we shot with him driving around in Washington. Well, it creates a kind of interesting effect. It's almost like you're in his head or something, like you can be a momentary intrusive voice of conscience or something asking him these questions about whether he feels he's responsible or, or guilty. I think it works. There's something very... Yeah very odd about it, something odd because the sound is different, yeah. something odd because you may not know it consciously, but on some level you know I'm not there, I'm elsewhere. Um, yeah. and, and for the movie as a whole, um, I mean, what... what I mean, what, what do you feel about the general sound design that, uh, you know, that it's this kind of very, um, his voice is very clear, and, and when you cut into him talking, it's often kind of pretty abrupt, you know, like he's, he's, he's really sort of saying something loud. Um, and then in between, you have the archival bits where the sounds are very hushed, that they're kind of these muffled sounds, you know. Um, I think, Tom, earlier you, you talked about the sense that it was foggy but detached, um, so that kind of feel. Well, the way the way Carl described it when we were discussing the job in the beginning was that we were creating an archive of his memory. So we wanted it to be a little bit beyond arm's length, but also very representative of what it might feel like in the memory, you know, but also off, not tangibly realistic per se, but, but also recognizable. So, you know, yeah. that was kind of what we were going for. And, and Errol, that's a feeling you have a lot in a number of your movies, that, that kind of, those interludes where you have very careful, rhythmically spaced out lines from interviews over archival footage, and then you have the interviews. I mean, how did you, how did you hit upon that kind of, I don't know, composition? <laughs> An interview is a form of music, hmm. really, hmm. properly considered. Um, I like to think, of course, this could be some mammoth self-deception on my part that my interviews are really different than brand X interviews. 
whatever brand X might be. Right. <laughs> um, that the way. Uh, the voice is recorded and also very much the way the voice is edited. Um, I was told that I was horribly dishonest, which of course is probably true. Uh, that I was horribly dishonest because I cut up interviews so much. But I would hide all the cuts. Uh, you can make all of these audio cuts, these cuts in the track, uh, in a, uh, audible, invisible, if you want to mix metaphors, <laughs> uh, by putting visuals over them. Uh, and in everything I've ever done, the, the audio is it's like chopped up with a Vegematic. It's like I've gone over it, uh, chopping and dicing and cutting. And in this movie, I thought, what the hell? I'll just make these jump cuts visible. So you'll see unending jump cuts in the visual with no effort made whatsoever to hide them. And I thought that this was more honest because at least I was displaying to the audience some of the underlying technique of how the film was put together. And I was, of course, told that this showed how truly depraved and dishonest I was. <laughs> so the answer is you can't win. Honestly, how dishonest you were. You were being honest about your dishonesty. <laughs> but anybody who thinks that movies aren't manufactured, that someone just turns a camera on and lets it run, or it turns a tape recorder on and lets it run, really certainly has never made a movie. Um, uh, and knows very, very little about how m movies are produced. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, another thing I want to ask about, just in terms of the soundscape of, of your movies, and this one included, uh, is the use of the music and the score um, and that kind of repeated quality you have of, of the Philip Glass music. Um, I, I sometimes I think of it like it's, like it's the sound of thought or something, <laughs> like sort of ruminating on something, or sometimes it's the sound of, uh, I don't know, just some sort of something whirring, like a, a motor or something. But I, I wonder, what, what does the Philip Glass score feel like to you? Well, when I first started work with Philip, which was the Thin Blue Line, uh, we were actually uh, sitting at a piano together, and he was working on what um, had what would become the main cue for the Thin Blue Line the, in the opening credits. And I said to him, the trouble with this music, you know, is it's just simply not repetitive enough. And he gave me this very, very weird look and said, well, that's a new one. <laughs> I, we both had the same music teacher, right? We both, at one time or another, were music students. Not at the same time. He's about 10, 11 years older than I am. But um, he was always somehow disturbed is not the right word, but worried about the fact that I could read music and knew something about it. Um, 
but there you go. <laughs> um, I'd ask for some musical accompaniment, so <laughs> thank you. And um, in the case of the Thin Blue Line, I believe he produced one of the truly great motion picture soundtracks. Yeah. Um, his daughter told him that it was the best thing he had ever done. And I don't know if that's true, but it's mm. a, something very, very good that he did. I always tell people before I talk, please turn on your cell phone because I really, really love ringtones. <laughs> um, maybe if we have a convenient aquarium, we can drop that in or something. Um, um, uh, so, but I mean, what what made you choose him to, for for a soundtrack in, in the first place? Um, editing with music is, is sound actually is really crucial to everything I've done. It's yeah. it's crucial to filmmaking. Uh, it's the last thing that people often talk about or think about it, but it is uh, an absolutely essential element. You could take it, you know. Um, so, when I was editing The Thin Blue Line, often you will have scratch music. You'll have recorded music that you experiment with. Mm -hmm. You put it against picture to see if it works or not. And I kept using Philip Glass. Um, he had just started writing for film. He wrote the soundtrack for Kiana Scotzi, he wrote the soundtrack for Paul Schrader's Mishima, and then The Thin Blue Line. And I used music from Mishima, I used uh, some Twyla Tharp dance pieces, and the music worked so extraordinarily well that I kept saying, you know, I need to find somebody who writes like Philip Glass <laughs> to do the soundtrack for the movie. And then came that Epiphany. <laughs> um, very hard to get him to agree to do it, but he f hard to get him to look at the rough cut of the film. That was the hard part. When he saw the rough cut of the film, he agreed to write the music immediately. Hmm. So that, so you actually, did you tailor the film at all afterwards when, when you had his, his score? Did you like change it a bit or? Just because it's it's so fine-tuned, the rhythm of it, and, and the rhythm of Fog of War, too. I mean, what's the kind of order or the process in the music, the sound design, and, and that? Such a weird process. He wrote a score, and the score didn't work. And I thought, oh, fuck. <laughs> now what am I going to do? <laughs> and... Um, I mean, but it didn't work. I'm just curious. What is that? It was just the wrong mood or something? Or was it? The, the music just didn't work. I would put the cues where they were supposed to go. I spotted them correctly, and they just did not work. And then suddenly I realized, well, wait a second. I don't have to put these cues where he tells me to put them. Let me just try to make them work any way I can. Let's shift everything around and... and find a way to make at least some of this music work, which I did. Um, and then I had to go back to him and ask him to write more music and then go back to him again and ask him to write more music. And each time I asked him to write more music, um, 
you would make it just a little bit more difficult for me. Um, so I found myself traveling around the country, various places where he was working. But at the end, he produced something that is uh, utterly wonderful. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> My wife also points out that in, in NPR, whenever there's a disaster, um, <laughs> the music of the Thin Blue Line comes on NPR. It's become the disaster <laughs> music for America. <laughs> the theme from disaster. <laughs> the theme from disaster. <laughs> But, um, no, McNamara, McNamara was a real person. Uh, there will be people who always despise him, perhaps for very good reason, despise his policies, despise what happened to America during his tenure as defense secretary. Um, but one thing is really clear, he was a, a thoughtful man. Uh, I've heard people talk about The Fog of War as though it's an optimistic film. Uh, I, I'm sorry, <laughs> but I don't quite see it that way. Hmm. I see it as a very deeply pessimistic and dark film, and the darkest moment for all, which I, uh, of all, which I got to see again this evening, is um, I don't know how much you know the history of McNamara and of Vietnam, but McNamara was in many ways a supreme rationalist, the person who really believed in human reason and ratiocination, you know, the belief that if you thought hard enough, carefully enough, um, rigorously enough, that somehow you would come up with the correct solution to a whole host of problems. Um, a man who really believed in rationality first and foremost. And when he says at the end of the movie that rationality will not save us, to me, coming from him, the supreme rationalist of all, that is a very, very, very dark moment. And one other thought I mean, I'll do briefly, but it's something that I think about often. Uh, a friend of mine, Joshua Oppenheimer, made these two films in Indonesia, right. Active Killing and The Look of Silence. And after Active Killing came out, I wrote a series of essays about the film and the history behind it. You know, these killings in Indonesia, roughly a million people died, uh, communists died uh, in, in 1965. When you watch the act of killing, you're not really aware that this is at the same time as the escalation, the serious escalation of the war in Vietnam. Uh, contemporaneous. Late, late 60s, right? 65 and after. 65. Yeah. And I went back to McNamara's book, which was written in the 90s, his history of, primarily his history of Vietnam, in retrospect. 
And there's this absolutely insane passage in the book. I'd read it many times, but I wasn't thinking carefully or thinking about it. But McNamara talks about the genocide in Indonesia in 1965 and says, what were we thinking? We killed a million communists in Indonesia. There was no danger of the dominoes falling in Indonesia. We had eliminated that problem altogether. Therefore, you know, what a syllogism. Therefore, the war in Vietnam, strictly speaking, was unnecessary. I think it's one of the darkest, darkest things that I've ever, ever, ever read. And that's just kind of an aside. <laughs> it's an aside uh, mostly expressed in a footnote. Um, you think about these wars. I mean, I'm, I'm utterly appalled at the moment by by a lot of things, my, what's going on in my country. Um, uh, if Vietnam was a completely unnecessary war, we were witnessed far more recently to a completely unnecessary war. Um, a war which maybe didn't cause all of the malefaction in the world, but certainly contributed to it destabilized an entire area of the world, uh, as we well know, has produced a horrendous refugee problem. And now America, whatever America is, there are all of these people in my country saying, well, we should close the borders to all of these people. Uh, having created chaos, uh, having created unthinkable misery. You know, let's pretend that um, it has really nothing whatsoever to do with us or our policies or who we are. Um, the, the saddest thing of all is the human unfettered capacity for self-deception and delusion. That's the message. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's that's definitely yeah one message. Uh, um, yeah, I mean just and you but you kind of signal in the beginning of the movie the atmosphere that it, that this these events in particular, I mean took place the Cold War, although that eventually just doesn't even add up as a reason as what happens afterwards. Um, but I mean part of what's good about the movie and, and that shouldn't really inflame people is that you're actually, I mean sympathetic in a way to his point of view uh, as opposed to just coming at him. Uh, am I sympathetic? Not sympathetic is the wrong word, but you're, you're willing to let him air it, I guess, even if it stinks. Well, he talks about sympathy versus empathy. I'm mm. empathetic to his point of view. How about that? Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when, I when I was working on the film, I, I felt like it was... I mean, it was super intense because I was in Brazil at the time when I got the call, and I was watching us go to war, shock and awe, had just 
started in the middle of post-production. I don't know if you remember, but... and I do remember very, very well. And for me, it was so emotional because I was like, oh, why didn't this movie come out a year ago? And everybody saw it and decided that this is a bad idea mm-hmm. because it was just, it was absolutely surreal. And actually, for me, it was even beyond because I was in Brazil kite surfing after having finished a job down there and I had a horrible accident and I literally had a brush with a big knock on the head so I was kind of in Netherland for a month after that while I was working on the Fog of War so it was extra surreal and I just I was practically crying every day editing just watching what was really happening in the world and watching this testimony and everything and it's yeah it was pretty dark yeah um, all right, I guess I'm afraid that's, we run out of time, but uh, Errol Morris and Tom Pohl, thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. All right.